Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Yes, so I'm really excited actually to share with you how to find your marriage partner. Um, And you're going to be surprised at how this thing is going to work. Before I do that, maybe I should just tell you who I am in a very small nutshell. Um, so that you can at least know that the person that's telling you how you're going to do this has in fact done it. I've, I feel like there's got to be some legitimacy um, in how to find a marriage partner. So um, as Jan George said, I'm, I'm Izan and I've been in Johannesburg now for seven years. Just over, Well, whatever, November I think it's seven years. And my husband and I have been married for just over seven years. We have two babies. One is four and the other one thinks she's four. But she is, in fact, one. Um, yes. But she literally thinks that she is four years old. It's hysterical. Um, and they're very cute. And maybe one day you'll get to see them. And if you come to morning services, you'll definitely see them. Me thinks they're hysterical most of the time. I think they are, too. Um, so what I was thinking about um, and what I'm trusting God for is to share some basic stuff and then to tell you a little bit of my story because um, I always feel like God uses our stories um, a lot more than he uses big fancy words. And um, so I hope that that will also encourage you to just share your stories with your friends and people that you meet and things that God does, whether it feels like they're big things or small things. Um, it always carries power when it's God that's done it. So to start off with, I have a video clip for you that Philip is going to throw out. And I... You'll be confused for the first 25 seconds, and then it's going to start making sense. So just like hold, hold on there. You're going to love this. I feel there's just so much in that video. That tells you exactly how to find your marriage partner. <laughs> and, and I feel like this is the point where I just say, that's how you do it. So great to see you and, and kind of walk out. But I find there are like the four things that we can take from that video and apply and then we'll, and we'll go from there. The first, when you saw that bird cleaning his space, clean up your space, men. Clean your house, clean your digs, clean whatever you need to clean. The second thing is, you've got to dress impressively. Those birds were impressive. They had, like, impressive span of, I don't know, frocks and big screens that their feathers created. So you've got to dress impressively. And then, of course, there's, why aren't you putting this up for them, Philip? you got to dance like no one's watching. But then you do know, and sorry for that spelling error, you always know people are watching, whether you think they're not or not. But you got to dance. you got to throw out your moves and dance. And then you got to hope for the best. But when you get deflated, you just start right back at the top. Like that bird. Start right back at number one and start cleaning your house again. I'm telling you, that bird won at some stage. I feel it's not on the screen or on that video clip, but that bird with his impressive span, he got his girl, eventually, when the right girl came along. Um, So if we talk about marriage or finding a marriage partner, or how do I find the one and that elusive, the one that's always sort of there, I feel like we need to define what we need a partner for. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm in my kitchen and I see 
um, my scissor, which is very precious to me. I'm left-handed. Is anybody left-handed here? Okay, so you'll know. Like, the stuff you use that works, you are precious and intense about them. Because us left-handed folk, we can't use right-handed stuff as successfully as the rest of you. It doesn't cut well. It, makes, it just makes the paper fold. It's, you've got to be left to get this. But my scissor is priceless to me. And if it's used for things like wire cutting, um, making a hole into something, I get a little bit irritated because I feel it's being used for something it was not made to be used for. So that's why I say we need to define what we need a partner for, what we need the one for. So if you look at the world, it has a definition for marriage. It says this is what it is, and the Bible has a definition. And the two link up often, but even nowadays you'll start to see, even if you Google this, um, they're changing the definition of marriage for today's age. And I feel like we just need to bring it back to what is God saying is if we believe God created marriage, he gets to say what it is. And then he also gets to say who's in it. And if we, he gets to say who's in it, then we know how we're going to find those people. So if you want to throw up that definition. Um, next one. Yes, The legal status, a condition or relationship that results from a contract. That's not the God part. That's the world part. By which one man and one woman who have the capacity to enter into such an agreement mutually promise to live together in the relationship of husband and wife, in law, for life, or until the legal termination of the relationship. That's the world definition of marriage. Do you agree with it 100%? Do you agree that it's all encompassing everything of what you think marriage is? No? Yes? Yeah? Not sure? Some of it? Thank you. I do lecture at ETA College, so I, I, I have this nod rule. Just nod if you're with me. You don't have to say it. Just nod. My students love me, because all they need to do is nod, even if they don't know anything. Just nod. Then I'm, like, then I'm okay, and then we carry on. That's the world's view of marriage. It's a contract. God's view says it's a covenant. It's a massive difference. Contract, we, we end the contract at some point if it doesn't work anymore. Covenant, don't get to end it. Death ends it. Nothing else. Massive difference already. So if you know and you want to follow a biblical view of marriage, you know that you're in this for life versus in this until it doesn't suit me anymore. So if you're going to look for someone, you're going to have to look for someone that you want to be in with forever. Not just somebody that you're going to go, eh, it's been, it's been great, but, you know, let's move on. Greener pastures, I'm sure. We need to go find it. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention about here is it says... Uh, which one man and one woman who have the capacity to enter into such an agreement. The capacity to enter it, for me, it means you're not currently married because if you are married, you can't marry again. I mean, you can't be married and be married. It doesn't work. So you have to have the capacity to be married. You can't be 12 in our country and marry. 
That's not legal in our country. It is legal in some countries, which is crazy. But the capacity means there are some requirements before you get to be married. And I agree with that. I agree that God also puts that for us. Um, and we're going to look at how that all comes together. But if we, um, I, th- I think the word has many ways of talking about marriage, talking about being the right person for marriage. But I want to take one thing out that I believe is so important, and it, it feels like it came through in the worship and in the words as well. Um, who of you just loved worship? Wasn't that incredibly special? Incredibly special. Um, God uses marriage in many ways, two ways specifically. He teaches us about himself through marriage. He illustrates God through marriage. In Genesis he said, I'm going to make man and woman and they're going to look like me. I'm going to make them in my image. So we illustrate God when we're married. Crazy. Do you need a minute for that to sink in? We illustrate God in marriage. Second thing we do is we procreate. Be fruitful and multiply was the command God gave. I'm not going to talk about being procreative. I believe when you're married, you're going to get this down all by yourself. And if you need help there, you can come to me then. So I do want to spend a minute on the illustration part. Because in Ephesians 5, you can read the whole part, but Paul's talking about husbands, what husbands are meant to do. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Footnote, doesn't say men and women. It says wives and husbands. Women, don't be submissive to men. Wives, be submissive to your own husband. Okay, massive difference. Hope that's going to help someone in this special crowd. Um, And then he carries on talking, and then eventually he comes to this one line, and he says, the mystery is profound. And this is in verse 32. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's explaining husband, and he's explaining wife, and he's saying all of this is so crazy and difficult to explain because it's a mystery. Because he's actually talking about Christ and the church. Who's the church? We, we are the church. You know. And Jesus, and Jesus' relationship with the church. If you read your Bible all the way from Genesis to the end, and you have to use one word to describe the entirety of the story, what would be your word? Or your one line? Or your idea? Do you have any ideas? Hey? Covenant? Good word. Good word, yes. Jesus, okay? That's a great answer. It's the absolute right answer. <laughs> Any other ideas? Metanoia, what does that mean? Change of your heart. Change of your heart and change of your mind. 180 degree directional change. Metanoia. I agree. I use the word love story. Love story. God created because he wanted relationship. We missed it. What does he do? Make a plan to restore relationship. 
What does he say to Abraham? You're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to make a nation because I want to love you and I want to show the entire world how much I love everybody through you, Israel. Every prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, everybody. And this comes in line with what Sean was saying about Hosea um, and his prostitute wife. Everything is about, oh, Israel, oh, Zion, oh, Jerusalem or whatever, the cry of my heart is that you come back to me. Don't idolize yourselves this side. Don't throw yourself and worship other things. Come back. I love you. I miss you. Come and be with me. The whole Old Testament. Come, Jesus. Consummates, in a way, the entirety of it. And moving from there, the continual process of restoring people unto himself, restoring us, restoring the church, using the church like he used Israel to show the world his love. It's a love story. It's a covenant story. It's a Jesus story. Love story. Did you ever think that the Bible was a love story? Are you surprised? (laughs) It's a love story. It's a love story. It's a really really great love story and it's one we should model Um, if I can interject just a little bit of my story here I grew up in a solidly broken home that makes no sense but it was so broken that it's solidly broken Um, my parents divorced when I was really young it was a violent kind of divorce it was really crazy in our home um, I think most days we didn't know if we were going to make it out the door alive or just, it was a fearful sort of setup. Um, my sister wasn't staying in our home at the time, which to a certain degree was great for her. I think it was God's grace on her life that she wasn't in there at the time. I was young, so I think I'm, I didn't feel the full brunt um, of the violence and the craziness. Um, and in all of that, two things stand out for me. How I have no idea what relationship that's healthy looks like. I had never seen, until I was 19 years old, I had never seen a healthy marriage, family that works. Not once. I'd seen marriages. I went to visit, I was in res at high school, so I went to you know, visit my friends on weekends, all kinds of things, and it was great. It was a whole lot more settled and stable than what I knew, but it I, I would still go, you know, this, you're, you're together, but I don't know if I want that. You, you might be in the same home, but really is that marriage? Because I had never seen it. My parents divorced when I was five. And every memory I have, which is very little, and I'm grateful to God for that, is an unhappy memory. I don't have a memory of my parents being together in the same room without them fighting. So I had really no idea what relationships looks like, look like. And I remember going to a wedding once in Otswurung, there in the Karoo. And a friend of mine says to me at this wedding, aren't you scared to get married one day? And I was like, why? And he said, well, because you, you have no idea. <laughs> you don't know what it looks like. Aren't you scared that... that you're going to mess it up or that you're going to follow sort of the history of your family and and I I thought about it and I was like no 
I'm not really scared about it. And I could say that for one reason only. Jesus had saved me by this time. If he had asked me this, I didn't know him before I got saved though, but should he have asked me this before I knew Jesus, I would probably have said, yes, I am afraid because I don't know how to be a wife. I don't even know what, to, what a husband looks like, what a good man looks like, how he speaks, how he handles women. I don't know. I hadn't seen it yet. All I had seen is, I want, I want, can you give? Oh, you can't give? Goodbye. Rejection. Continual rejection. Some of you in this house tonight, God's going to heal you of rejection. You've been rejected by men. You've been rejected by your family. You've seen violence and you've seen real destruction. God's going to heal you tonight. Rejection is a miffy thing. It's my history. It's not my future. Jesus saved me. And in the process of coming to know him, I remember asking him, Lord, I have no idea what guy friends should be like. I don't know how men operate, how men that serve you look, how they handle women. I I don't know. I need you to show me. I need you to give me some friends so that I can see what's right. Not the simple, yeah, you can take my seat, Grungy, grungy, stand other side, yeah, muff kind of thing. Because it's the right thing to do. Just how they operate. And I remember the years had gone from there. We did lots of student camps. We did lots of sort of social things together. And life carried on. And I remember at some stage, God sort of taking me one side and saying to me, can you see? Can you see your friends? Can you see how they honor and speak up? towards you, even when they differ from you, even when they just, they're not even friends with you, they're just acquaintances or they just greet you, can you see? I'm showing you what my guys look like when I'm in their lives, when they follow me. And I remember saying to God, thank you. I was very grateful. Because the one thing is, if you come from a background like mine, which is wobbly and full of rejection, and can somebody just love me? Can somebody tell me I'm accepted? Can somebody tell me I'm pretty enough to be in your company? If that's your background, trust me, you need God to reshape your mind around men and around your place with them and how they must react and be around you. This is specifically for the girls. Um, But the guys at the same tone, if... Women are just around you, and I see this at, at school where I teach. The girls are all over the guys. All they want is somebody to say, you're good enough for me. And then the bad thing is, two, three months down the line, I check it out and I go, uh-oh, that failed. And I see this girl broken or the other way around. I see the girls flaunting themselves, throwing themselves at the guys, and they are merciless because maybe you have something I want. Other way around. When the girls do that, and they're dominating and they speak awfully to the guys. In my class, if you are rude to the guys, you step out and you go say, I'm sorry. Because we don't speak to men down, ever. 
the same the other way around. But I find that in just where I teach and the, and the students that I've been seeing for the past six or so years, there's this disrespect between the guys and the girls, this sort of you know, familiarity, bad, I give my everything, I expose my entire heart to you, here I am, take me. And then there's nothing hidden and there's nothing secure and there's nothing precious anymore. And then you think you're a rag and some doormat. And the guys are broken and they're sore because girls use them. It's, this, it's a really, really bad setup and it's, it's what I see every day because I work with 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds. That's my, my, my people. And then I say to myself, <clears throat> What is it that we look for in relationship? What do I see? What does my background tell me? What did I look for in relationship all those years? For me, it was security. I really wanted security. Because my background was very insecure. It was volatile and bad, and I never knew where I was or where I lived half the time. I remember going home from varsity once with my dad and I'm going I don't even know our address what is our address now where do we stay he moved that often so I would never invite my friends to my dad's house because I don't exactly knew where we would be going home to all the time or who would be there for that matter Um, so I'd always visit their houses it's safer that way I was the only divorced family in my entire grade at school. So I was the odd one out and totally weird by that stage. So security was massive to me. I needed security. I needed identity. I had no identity. I had no idea who I was. No idea whether I was even valuable. So if somebody says to me, yeah, I want to be with you, that immediately told me I must be some value into me. This is secure, even though it would have been very insecure in the long run. But in that moment, the fact that you take your arm and you put it around me feels very secure right now. It feels very safe right now. I feel valuable. I have some identity. I'm his girl. That's how we operate. I'm his girl. Other things we look for is that intimacy thing. We so want to share our lives and our stories with someone. You want to be connected with someone. You know? And that, there's nothing wrong with that, with the desire to share intimacy, with the desire for security and the desire. It's very wrong if we place it on a person to fulfill all of that. It's impossible You'll be unfulfilled and unhappy, trust me, divorced within a few years if you marry somebody with those expectations on them or they having the expectations on you. You're not built for it. You don't have the physical shoulders, men, to carry the weight that these women are throwing at you. You're not built for it. The same way, girls, you're not built to look for these things in men. We're, we're built to look for it in God. The Bible says our hearts cry out to him whether we know him or not. Our souls know. When life gets really hard, you can ask anybody. 
Who are they going, oh God, help me, when they walk around, even though they don't believe him? Their souls know God's there. That's the, the cry that you watch TV stories with it scripted in. Oh God, oh God, help me. Why do you think we'll do that if we don't really know? That's exactly who we should be calling out to in those times of need. That's the only person who can fulfill this fully. And that's the truth. So um, just knowing that what we want, our desires are not wrong. Our desire for marriage, our desire to find a partner to share our lives with, that's not wrong. Our desires for that person to meet all my needs, very wrong. It's impossible. You're going to be unfulfilled and unhappy very early in your relationship. Because you won't be able to fulfill it, and nor will that person be able to fulfill all those needs that are being thrown at you all the time. Especially if you have wobbly backgrounds. Don't we all have some wobble in our background? We all have hurt. We all have some mess up that happened at some point. And it's pivotal to who we've become. But I want to say to you, doesn't, it's not where we stay. That thing that happened, all those things that happened for many of us, that shaped us, it doesn't determine our value. And it doesn't determine our identity. And it doesn't determine where we're going. Only Jesus gets to do that. Only Jesus gets to do that. We don't stay there. But that's a choice we make too. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we say, take all of me. Forgive all of that mess. I don't know how to think differently. I don't. I've, I've never done it before. Like I said to God, I don't know how to relate to guys. I've never done it successfully. I need you to rewire my brain to think the way you think, to speak the way you speak, to honor men, to speak highly of them. My students laugh at me all the time, because especially the girls. I often say, don't you dare touch that boy's ego. His ego is special. His ego is created by God, and it's there for his wife's protection. And they all look at me like, what are you saying, ma'am? You're so weird. I first year said to my, my friend, Sunel, who now works with me, she's in church with us, he's on so religious. She says these weird things to me all the time. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> because it's truth, and it, gets, it sticks with this guy. And the funny thing was, he had this exact same conversation with Sunel, and he says to Sunel, everything you're saying is already said. So Sunel's like, well, what's the point? Why, why are we having this conversation again then? You, it's now twice that it's been said. What are you going to do now? Okay, the truth only comes around so many times. You need to act on it. So yes, guys, your ego is special. It's created by God. It needs to be managed by God. <laughs> but it's there for your wife's protection. <laughs> it's there for your wife's protection. Because you, being able to go and conquer when you walk out the door, having a healthy ego, stems from how well things are going in your home, your relationship with your wife. 
that's your protection. You're going to go think about that, some of you. Um, there's a scripture in Song of Solomon's. <clears throat> I use the message version of the Bible. Um, it's a really great way of saying it. I thought it was simple. It says, oh, let me warn you, sisters in Jerusalem. Let me warn you, sisters in Jerusalem. Don't excite love. Don't stir it up until the time is ripe. And you are ready. The time is ripe and you are ready. My sisters, the word is saying, my sisters, let's not stir up love until the time is ripe. And you are ready. Why do you think the Bible says that? I think it says it more than once in Song of Solomon. I remember reading it a few times. And if you know your Bible, you'll know whenever things are repeated, it means it's important. If things are said twice, more than twice, you've got to pay some attention to it. Don't stir it up. Don't go looking for trouble. Because that's what it will be. You will find trouble before the time is right. And trouble means you'll get hurt. You'll get hurt. I know it says my sisters, but men, it's the same thing. If we go look for love, and I use sort of the inverted comma thing, if we go look for love, go ask ourselves, what are we really looking for? Am I just desperate for somebody to say I'm good enough? Am I Desperate for somebody to say to me, I'm valuable. I'm, I'm important to you. I desperately want to be not this unknown random in the street. I desperately want to be seen with that guy or that hot girl. If I can snag her, the deal is done. I'm in with the cool guys. I'm ready. I can do this. Get some status with the people I'm seen with. Yeah, no. We're going to mess it up. You're going to go home and ask yourself some questions tonight. What are you looking for, really? What have you been looking for? And what is God hoping to change in your heart tonight about things you've been thinking? For various reasons, either because you just don't know any better. This, this is all you know. You, you can't not have a boyfriend. That's impossible. Some women are like that. You can't not have a guy in your life. There's something wrong then, and, and those, they go, look for someone. Why? I need validation. I need somebody to validate my existence and say to me, I'm beautiful, and I'm accepted. Hopefully, when you open your heart tonight, Jesus is going to change that. Because he wants to be the one to validate you. If we look at God and, and we say to ourselves, we are his creation, who gets to determine our identity then? Hey? Say it out loud, fans. Yes. God determines our value. He determines our identity. And he, in fact, reveals ourselves... To us. Only he can do that. If you think about it, we might need to say this again because this shakes my brain every time. When I spend time with Jesus in my quiet time, he reveals more of him 
and he reveals more of me to me. Because I don't know all of me. I think I do. I really don't. Especially when I'm all random and broken and messed up. And I go to, and I'm like, Lord, what is this thing in my heart? I don't know this. And then he says to me, that's what's going on. He's the one that reveals me to me. And he reveals himself to me. Some of us use relationship as plasters. You know, you have a wound. It's open. You stick a plaster. You feel better. Let me tell you about a wound that shouldn't get a plaster. When I was in my second year, I studied sports science in Selimosh. It's a really stupid story, but it illustrates the point. Um, I went to, no, I was in my first year. I had swimming as a subject. Take a minute, yes. I had swimming and tennis and golf and hockey and all sports of the world as a subject. All the accountants were jealous. <laughs> I wasn't a good swimmer, but I could keep on my float. But the diving thing, yes, it's hard. Because we had to swim provincial times for our exams. It was hysterical. Yes. I obviously failed that. But then I'd, I'd make it up with a theory exam, because there's always a theory exam. So I just fixed it up, and we leveled out the mark, and I at least got my 50. Um, but now, in the time that we had swimming, I was in Paul with some friends of mine, and she had to change her wheel. Um, I don't know, it went flat or whatever, and she had the Datsun Bucky. Do any of you know what a Datsun Bucky looks like? It's those really tiny little dingy things that you don't really want to drive in. Um, the spare wheel is right at the bottom of the bucky part. It's not attached like other cars. So you have to unscrew this business at the bottom. It is a mess. Elzon is my friend. So the two of us are like this, underneath the car. She says, Elzon, you just hold it. I'll unscrew. Okay. So I'm holding this business. I am tired. By the time she unscrewed, I think the second bolt. Like, how long is this going to take? My arms are dying. And she's like, last the end, last the end. And, and I'm holding this thing. And something happens between her unscrewing the last thing and me losing all the power and the energy I had. And it falls on my hand. And I thought maybe it was just like a, a part of the metal of, you know, the wheel's inner thing. Tire. Is it a tire or a wheel? A wheel's inner thing. That my, it hit me and I was like, ah, oh, I know. And I'm sitting like this. And she's like, oh, he's on, are you right? I'm like, I'm sure I'm fine, whatever. It just hurt. I thought I maybe bruised. You know when your nail goes blue? It just bruised. Mm-mm. So my pinky finger just sort of burst open. So one of the bolt things went through. And it was this business. It was horrific. And it was blood all over me. And I was like, oh. And we were at this person's house who I don't know to get a mattress or a something and we're running in there and this poor woman she's like oh let me give you sugar water and I'm like for what just give me the tap I'm dying to so give me sugar water because apparently I was in shock me never <laughs> with the little sugar water and she sticks a plaster on my open wound so tight that I thought there's no way I'm going to pull this thing off no way, I might just pull all this, the flesh with the plaster. This lovely woman, she intended only good. 
She just wanted to help me. After the plaster, I was very thankful for the sugar water. And I went to sleep with the plaster on. Next morning, I wake up, I look at this finger, and I see, I don't know much about medical stuff, but I do know when it goes red and swollen, it's not okay anymore. So I opened the plaster with, I felt like I probably needed a shot of something at the time to be able to do this effect. Yo, and so I took off the plaster, and, and you know what a plaster does? It makes it look white under, like it took in fluid or like water, retained, whatever. And um, I looked at this and I thought, oh, this is over. Anyway, long story short, I had to go tell my very strict swimming teacher I'm not allowed to swim with my finger. Do you know how stupid you feel with a finger? I can't swim. I had to go to the doctor. He said to me, antibiotics, sissy, because you were supposed to get stitches. Puts me on antibiotics for five days or however long you are on them. Says to me, just don't have the thing closed ever. Keep kept it open, was on antibiotics, the inflammation went away. Didn't need to get stitches in the end. I cut off a little piece of the skin that was going to go in and I thought, ooh. Wrong treatment to the wound. Plaster was the wrong treatment for the wound that I had. But yet I put the plaster on through this lovely woman who meant it for good and thought that it would heal. What did I do? Three steps back. I had to go over to the doctor and pay money for antibiotics on my student salary of nothingness. The doctor, antibiotics, five days later, mission cut drama. What should we have done? Go into the hospital, get the stitches, move on. That was the right treatment. So the moral of the story is if you stick plasters on stuff that shouldn't be getting plasters, you're taking three steps back. God wants to heal the wound, not stick plasters on it. That's not how he works. He heals completely. You might see a very tiny little scar there. Tiny, tiny. This is a couple of years now. But it's there. Do I have any problem with it now? No. Why? It healed fully. No more plasters. Don't use relationships to stick plaster on plaster, and then every time it breaks up, relationship doesn't work, you peel off the plaster, and you have a raw wound again. God wants to heal your heart. He wants to heal your background. He wants to heal your mind. He wants to speak truth over you so that you can start believing truth and living from that place of truth and of strength. Not a wounded place that you keep on sticking stuff on. The last thing I want to say about this is a lovely quote about, from Andy Stanley. Who of you have seen any of Andy Stanley's stuff? He's really good. He says things simply. And he has this one-liner. And you're going to need to hear this three times. Maybe it's just me because I'm blonde and I needed to hear it three times before I, I got it. But hopefully you'll get it by the third time. Be the person the person you are looking for is looking for. Nee. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. That's how you find a marriage partner. You become a marriage partner. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. How do I do that? I serve Jesus.
I serve Jesus because he determines me. He determines where I'm going. He sorts everything out. So that by the time love comes knocking on the door, you are ripe and ready to receive and to give. Because relationship is not about what you can get out of it. No relationship, romantic or other, is about me and getting what I want from it. That is warped. It is from the devil. Relationship is about what we can give. And we can't give when we've got 50 plasters sticking up 50 wounds. We can't. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. I didn't need to just say to you that I said this about 16 times in the car so that I say it right, because I keep missing the first be the person when I say it. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. 